Well, we're continuing our study through the book of Mark. And last week we ended with Jesus telling the disciples that if you want to be great in God's eyes, you should be a servant to other people. Minister to them, bless them. And basically think of it this way. Ask yourself, what does God need from you? Does he really need anything? Is there something in your life that God doesn't have? Maybe other than our obedience, right? Now, when you get to a certain age and people ask you what you want for your birthday, what you want for Christmas, and you say, there's nothing I really want, nothing I really need. How many of you? And you get a little bit older, you know, there's nothing you really need. And if you look in our garage and there's just stuff everywhere, you realize there really is nothing we, we really need. That's how God is. There's nothing you have that God doesn't have. There's nothing you have that God needs other than your obedience, other than your, your love for him. Well, since you have nothing that God wants, God says, how about you do this? Help someone else. How many have ever received a gift? Now, I'm gonna call it regifting. <laughs> but you know that you don't need it, but somebody else really needs it. You give that to them. That's how you bless the person who gave it to you. Give it to someone who can actually use it. God calls us to minister to someone who can't help themselves. God's saying, you want to be great for me? Help that guy over there. So now the story continues with what seems to be something different, but it actually ties in all together. Mark 9, 38 Teacher, said John, we saw a man driving out demons in your name and we told him to stop because he's not one of us. Now, there's a couple things going on here, I think. John says, we. So it appears that all the other guys were in on this, but John was kind of the appointed spokesman. We know it couldn't be Peter because Peter's always shooting his mouth off, getting himself in trouble. And they said, no, Peter's not going to, we're not going to let Peter talk today. John, you're his favorite. You go talk to Jesus. Now, so all the guys are in on it, they're kind of pushing John to the front to ask the question. And the second thing, it seems to be that they're deflecting the embarrassment they experienced with not healing the, guy, the little boy. They were commissioned to go out, they were commissioned to deliver, and they had done it, and now they couldn't do it. So now instead of focusing on that, they're kind of pushing it off, hey, let's look at something else. Jesus, look over there. Forget about that, that who's the greatest thing, Look at what is happening over there. And thirdly, they're also probably upset because this, this guy, we never know his name, he's doing something that we were supposed to do, we were commissioned to do it, and we've done it in the past, but now we can't do it. And this guy, we don't even know who he is, he's doing it. It's kind of embarrassing, right? Jesus commissioned us to do it, we can't do it, and this nobody over here, he, he can do it. So we got to stop that. He's not one of us. we got to stop that. He's not one of your chosen disciples. Now, stop here for a minute. A lot of our, and Anna mentioned that, a lot of our brothers and sisters in Christ believe that miracles were only done by the disciples. How many have been taught that? It, it ended when they ended, that, that ended. And when they died and the Bible was completed, all these things stopped because it was the disciples that did it. The apostles were the only ones that did it. Once they were gone, we don't need it anymore. Well, we have one guy over here who's not an apostle, not a disciple. He's doing it. 
So it wasn't just the 12 that were commissioned to do it. God gave that ability to everyone. You don't have to be an apostle or prophet or live only during those times to be used by God in the miraculous. 1 Corinthians 12 and 14 give specific instructions how those gifts are to be used currently in a church setting. And Jesus goes on to correct your thinking about this, this who's doing and who's not doing it. Verse 39 says, do not stop him, Jesus says. No one who does a miracle in my name can't in the next moment say anything bad about me. Jesus is saying, there's, there's not a restriction on who can do this. It's available to anyone who is willing to do it. This guy, who we don't know, he was just as willing, just as able, and just as available to be used by God as any of the other 12. Everyone here, if you're willing and you're able, and most of all, if you're available to be used by God, God will use you in the miraculous. You don't have to be a preacher. You don't have to be a deacon. If you are sold out to God and you're available to God, God can use you to do the same thing. If this guy's doing miracles in Jesus' name, he's probably not going to go bad-mouthing him anytime soon. That's what Jesus is saying. Hey, no matter what he does, if he's doing that now, he's not going to say anything bad about me because he's being sold out to God. He's full of the Holy Spirit doing what God calls him to do. Let me give you an example from the Old Testament. Numbers eleven twenty four. It says, so Moses went out and told the people what the Lord had said. He brought together 70 of their elders and had them stand around the tent. Then the Lord came down in the cloud and spoke with him. And he, and he took of the spirit that was on him and put the spirit on 70 elders. When the spirit rested on them, they prophesied, but they did not do so again. However, they, however two men whose names were Eldad and Medad had remained in the camp. They were listed among the elders, but did not go out to the tent. Yet the spirit rested on them, and they prophesied in the camp. A young man ran and told Moses, Hey, Eldad and Medad are prophesying in the camp. Joshua, son of Nun, who had been Moses' aide since youth, spoke up and said, Moses, my Lord, you need to stop them. But Moses replied, Are you jealous for my sake? I wish that all of the Lord's people were prophets, and the Lord would put his spirit on them. Same thing here. God wants each one of us to be available to be used by God through the Holy Spirit. And then Jesus makes a clear line of demarcation. In Mark 9, 40, he says, whoever is not against us is for us. And then Matthew's account gives us a reverse of that statement in Matthew 12, 30. He who is not with me is against me, and he who does not gather with me scatters. You know what that tells me? There's no neutral ground in God's kingdom. You're either on God's side or not. You're either saved or you're not. You either believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Messiah, the God of the universe, who died for your sins, or you don't. And if you don't believe in those, by default, you are against God. Now, you may think you're ambivalent or neutral or noncommittal, but all those things tell us you're actively against God. You may think that you don't want to take a stand either way, but that fact alone tells us that you've taken a side, the side of unbelief. Now, as I'm writing this, you know, I like old music. 
How many know who the band Rush is? It's a rock group, Rush. They did a song called Free Will. And one of the lyrics in that song goes like this. If you choose not to decide, you still have made a choice. You've chosen not to decide. If you're waiting to make a decision to believe in Jesus, in other words, the jury's still out, you're examining the evidence, the decision you're making right now while you think you're waiting, that decision is not to believe. You're, you're choosing not to believe because you're waiting. You're choosing right now not to believe while you wait for enough evidence to believe, and therefore, if you die with that decision, you're not going to make it to heaven. Is that clear? All right, let's move on. Verse 41 says, I tell you the truth, anyone who gives you a cup of water in my name because you belong to Christ will certainly not lose his reward. <clears throat> now, it seems that this goes best with the welcoming of children, but it actually goes with the last sentence. This guy was delivering people from demons in Jesus' name. Jesus is saying that if you do anything in my name, whether it's delivering people from demons, healing the sick, or even as little as giving someone a drink of water, you're going to be rewarded for that. It's not the miracles that draw the attention. Not draw the attention the most that gets rewarded. It's the things we do in Jesus' name, whether or not it's visible to everybody else. This guy was doing something that was visible. But Jesus says, that's great. I want everybody to do that. But it doesn't stop there. It goes as far as bringing someone a cup of water. Everybody wants to be out in the front, demonstrative, doing the things that people see. Jesus says, hey, look, you want to be great? Give someone a drink of water. Something that nobody sees, no one pats you in the back for, no one gives you accolades for, you just give them a cup of water. And you do it in Jesus' name. He said, you're not going to lose your reward for doing that. Now, it doesn't mean the miracles won't get rewarded. They will. But it means that even the small, seemingly insignificant things we do in Jesus' name will be rewarded just as much as the others. You work in healing, and people come to see you, and you are under God's anointing, and the Spirit's working through you. You'll get the same reward as someone who works in the nursery changing diapers because you're doing it in Jesus' name. And if you've ever changed some of those diapers, <laughs> worse yet, how many have those, we used to, I don't know if they make them, any, diaper genies. They're supposed to secure it odor-wise, but then you open it up to get rid of it. Oh, that's a thankless job. And you got, you got ladies that are, that are doing that for your children. <laughs> and we appreciate them very much. <laughs> Verse 42. He goes on and says, If anyone causes one of these little ones who believe in me to sin, it would be better for him to be thrown into the sea with a large millstone tied around his neck. And again, it seems like it, this, this should be with the kids thing, when Jesus is talking about children. But how many know God puts things in the order he wants them to be? There's a reason that it's in this order. Because if you look at the context, he's been talking about some unknown guy performing miracles in Jesus' name. And the 12, they're really upset about it. They're being embarrassed by this guy that no one knows. Jesus didn't call him. They couldn't do it. 
They're trying to deflect all the stuff about the great, you know, who's the greatest. They're trying to deflect it to this guy. And they're upset. And Jesus says that doing anything truly in my name will be rewarded. And then he talks about the little ones and sin. Now, little ones here does not refer to children. It refers to anyone following Christ. Whether you're a little believer, a mature believer, that's who Jesus is talking about. The little ones here are those, quote, who believe in me. So anyone who believes in Jesus, God's calling you children. And the word sin refers to anyone preventing anyone else from acting in Jesus' name. Now the disciples were basically trying to prevent this guy from acting in Jesus' name. Hey, dude, we're the only one allowed to do this. No one else is permitted to do this. You need to stop this guy. He's not authorized to do it. Think about it this way. This is similar to the position held by those who believe that only apostles did miracles and nobody else did, and it stopped when they died. That's their theology. That's their belief. That also allows these same folks to say that we shouldn't, should not be operating in these gifts because we're not one of the 12. See the similarity. This one guy who nobody knows, we never know his name, Jesus said, let him go. He's doing it right. Let him go. And the guys were like, no, he's not one of us. He can't be doing it. We're the only ones who are authorized to do it. Fast forward 2,000 years, that same theology is in effect. Hey, only the 12 could do it. It doesn't apply today. We can't be one of those guys doing that stuff. Same thing. And what did they say about Jesus? What did they say about now? People who operate in the gifts. Not everybody, but some who don't believe in it. What do they say? They were demon-possessed. That the demons are working through us. And when we have tongues, that's the devil speaking. Does that sound familiar to you? Luke eleven fourteen, Jesus was driving out a demon that was mute. When the demon left, the man who had been mute spoke and the crowd was amazed. But some of them said, by Beelzebub, the prince of demons, he's driving out demons. So we're in good company when we operate in the spiritual gifts and people yell at us for it and don't agree with us because Jesus was yelled at you by operating in the gifts. Now, we're going to have a study on the gifts later on, not today, but later on we're going to go in more detail about the, in the future about that. But what we don't want to do is we don't want to prevent God from using us to do what he wants to do. We sang it this morning, I've said it. We make room for you. Make room for you. Why? To do what you want to do. And I've said it before, we have an agenda that we use, we have it lined up, but we are not so tied into that that we don't let God do whatever he wanted, wants to do. I mean, prayer wasn't part of that on the schedule. The word that we got from God wasn't on the schedule. But this is God's church. God wants to do something in his church that I don't plan for, let him do it. Not my church. I want God to do what he's going to do. Because God knows what everybody needs. I don't. But the Holy Spirit can minister to you here in ways that nobody knows, but he knows and he can minister to you. Whether it's through a song or through the word or whatever happens, that's why I want God to have his way. And Jesus is saying the same thing. We don't care. As long as he's operating in my name, doing it according to what my word says, let him go. He's doing it right. 
And I believe that still applies today. As long as we're doing it according to God's word and doing it right, God can still work in his ways. Now, why was Jesus so upset about this? Because the offense was so serious that Jesus says, it'd be better for you to be drowned than to draw these little ones away from me. Verse 42, it'd be better for him to be thrown into the sea with a large millstone tied around his neck. That's one of those, not the little ones, it's the real big ones that the donkeys used to turn in the mill. So it was huge. In other words, one commentator says, that was a big stone. How's that for a theological definition? I would never say or stop those who do not believe that the gifts are for today. If they love Jesus and preach God's word, I'd never doubt their sincerity. Who might have said that? That's God's job for their life. Romans 14, 4 says, Who are you to condemn God's servants? They're responsible to the Lord, so let him tell them whether they are right or wrong. I have good friends that, that don't believe like we believe. I don't, they love Jesus, they serve God, I'm okay with that. I just believe they're missing out on the great things that God wants to do through them for their people. There's tons of examples today and in years gone by where God is glorified when he used people in these gifts of the Spirit. Now Jesus ends this time of teaching with a warning. These guys were letting their preconceived notions of who should be doing the miracles and who should not. And Jesus goes on to tell them that anything like that, anything that is divisive in your life or in the body of Christ that draws you away from God has to go. What is in your life that divides you from other Christians and divides you and keeps you away from God? Mark 9, 43. If your hand causes you to sin, cut it off. It's better for you to enter life maimed than with two hands to go into hell where the fire never goes out. And if your foot causes you to sin, cut it off. It's better for you to enter life crippled than to have two feet and be thrown into hell. And if your eye causes you to sin, pluck it out. It's better for you to enter the kingdom of God with one eye than to have two eyes and be thrown into hell where the worm does not die and the fire is not quenched. All right. Now we all know he's not talking about that literally, right? This is a figurative thing. He's trying to get the point across in a way that people understand it. Because nowhere else in the Bible does God tell anybody to do this. It's an analogy. It's an emotional word picture. All these body parts symbolize physical issues of life. So serious are these issues that Jesus says point blank, the result if, here's the results. If you don't overcome these things in your life, you're not gonna make it. The hand. Well, the hand is usually equated, equated with stealing, harming others, or physical conflict. Cain killed Abel. He used his hand to do it. God says, if you're doing that, you're stealing, you're harming others, you're physical conflict, stop it. Foot. Where do you go that you know you shouldn't go? You travel, you walk. Genesis 13, 11. So Lot chose for himself the whole plain of the Jordan and set out toward the east. The two men parted company. Abram lived in the land of Canaan, and Lot lived among the cities of the plain and pitched his tents near Sodom. His feet took him towards sin. He walked towards Sodom. It says, now the men of Sodom were wicked and were sinning greatly against the Lord. So Abram said to Lot, 
Which way you want to go? Lot looked over at the world and said, I'm going over there. As Christians, we're not supposed to follow the world, right? It may look good. It may look pleasing. God says, don't follow them. You, can, you have to live in the world, but you don't become part of the world system. You live in it, and you do what you need to do here, but you're not part of that system. And if your feet take you to places you know you shouldn't go, stop doing it. Stop going to places you know you shouldn't be. I, what do you allow in your eye gate that will affect your life? What do you watch? What do you read? Matthew 6, the eye is the lamp of the body. If your eyes are good, your whole body is full of light. But if your eyes are bad, your whole body will be full of darkness. With all the technology that's today, I think that's the biggest one. We constant, there's constant entertainment, there's constantly things going. Now, some of you of my age, you remember when actually TV went off the air. 12 o'clock, 1 o'clock, it went off the air. There was nothing on TV. You got a signal. It was off. You heard, you heard the Star Spangled Banner, and TV went black. Actually, snow. I know you can't believe it happened, but yeah. There was a time that actually TV never was on. No matter what channel you flipped to, it was snow, because it was off the air. Now, you, there's... Anything and everywhere you can go, internet, TV, it's on 24-7. What do you watch that you know you shouldn't watch? And what is put in front of you by accident that you linger on? If you're flipping through social media or whatever, there's going to be things in front of you that you shouldn't be watching. <laughs> Skim right by it. I told the my first steps class, this is for the guys. First look is free because you really can't, you can't, you know, you're there. It just happens. The second look is your problem. The second look is your fault. So if someone walks in front of you and you just happen to see them, that's great. But if you do this, that's your fault. What are you letting in your eyes? Because what you see, the enemy is going to continue to bring back to you in the future. You see something you're not supposed to see, guess what's going to come up in your mind? How many of when you worship, you think of something else? Something that comes in your mind out of the blue. Something you may have watched on TV the last night. The Bible says you need to control all these issues in your life. And the Bible also says the Holy Spirit will help you do that. If you listen to the promptings of the Spirit. If you don't, and these things are able to command you and control you, the Bible says, you ain't going to make it. Because if, you, if these issues begin to master you, instead of you mastering them, you'll be drawn away. One commentary says it this way. He is demanding the cessation of the sinful activities that, of these members of the body Radical surgery is demanded. Nothing less is at stake than eternal life. So all these things that we know we allow in our lives, we know we shouldn't allow in our lives, God says, you need to get a hold of that and stop it. Verse 49, he says, everyone will be salted with fire. Awesome. This verse has meant as many interpretations as there are commentators. <laughs> the most logical one, I think, is the reference to the Roman Christians, 
Remember, Mark is written to the Romans. These are Gentiles who live in Rome. They're under persecution at this time because they're turning away from whatever religion was there. And it helped them to understand that persecution is to be expected. Everyone's going to be salted with fire. You're going to get persecuted. They needed to know that they're not being disciplined because of sin, but they're being persecuted because of righteousness. Hoping to remind them about what he said in the Sermon on the Mount. Matthew 5.10. Blessed are those who are persecuted because of righteousness, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. There's a difference between persecution and consequence. If you do something that you know you shouldn't do, say you rob a bank and you go before the judge, that's not persecution. That's not persecution for being a Christian. A lot of people claim that, but it's not. Persecution is when you stand up for Jesus and you are negatively affected because of that stand. You, don't, you choose to tell your employer you're not going to sin on the job, and they fire you. That's persecution. When I was in sales for a number of years, if you're in sales, I don't know if you're encouraged to do this anymore, but we were, to bend the truth when you talk to a customer. Just kind of either don't tell them everything or you know, make it sound better than it actually is. And I told my boss at the time, I can't do that. I didn't get fired, but I got yelled at for not doing that. That would be persecution. If what you do for Jesus because it's the right thing to do and people don't understand it and you suffer a consequence because of that stand for righteousness, that's persecution. And he's telling them, because you're doing it right, you're going to get persecuted. And doesn't it feel better to know that what's happening is not because you're doing something wrong, but because you're doing something right. You walk away going, you know, this is a bad situation, but I know I'm doing it right, so I'm not going to heap guilt on myself. I'm doing what God wants me to do, and whatever I'm suffering is because I'm doing it right, not because I'm doing it wrong. So Jesus ends this teaching with another analogy and a challenge. In verse 50, it says, salt is good. But if it loses its saltiness, how can you make it salty again? Have salt in yourself and be at peace with each other. Now, previous verse, the word salted is a verb. Here, it's a noun. The New Testament uses the word purified. Now, we all know the difference between being salted, a verb, and salt, which is a noun. Not the same thing. So what were and are the characteristics of salt? How many, how many like salt? I'm a, I'm a salt guy. I salt my pizza. There you go. Salt in the Old Testament speaks of purity and preservation. In other words, it keeps food from spoiling, right? It was, it was very important at that particular time. They didn't have refrigeration or anything else, so they had to use salt to purify or to keep the meat fresh. One ancient quote says this, the world cannot survive without salt. That's how they thought about salt back then. And Jesus says, hey, salt is good. Again, referencing the Sermon on the Mount, Matthew 5, 13. You are the salt of the earth. If the salt loses its saltiness, how can it be made salty again? It's no longer good for anything except to be thrown out and trampled by men. The disciples were God's salt to preserve and to be examples to the world. And so are we. How do you do that? You're, it's done by having a good Christian character. We talked about this in our class today. How do you live? 
do people see something different in your life that may attract them? At first, they may repel them, but as they see you living for Jesus, something is gonna, it's gonna be a little bit of salt, it's gonna flavor a little bit in their life, and they're gonna come to you with a question. They're gonna come to you when times get tough in their life, wanting to know what you have. We live our life, they used to call it lifestyle evangelism. How you live should dictate what Jesus is doing in your life. Now, and Jesus is saying, that's good. You wanna live like that. Now, salt today, doesn't expire right it doesn't it it always is good back then it, it did lose its flavor it lost all its ability to preserve and jesus is saying that if you lose those qualities of a christian character how do you get it back if you quit being a christian if you quit acting like you want to love jesus if that if you quit doing that how do you get it back and how do you, how are you now an influence on the world and he's basically telling them, instead of griping about who's the greatest and complaining about some other guy doing what you can't do and being mad at him, how about examining your own heart? How about look at yourself? He's also warning them that it's easy to lose your saltiness, in other words, your Christian character, when you're salted with fire. When you're getting persecuted, it's easy to want to back off and not take a stand for Jesus. You lose your job. Maybe, I'll, okay, I don't want to lose my job, so I'll compromise. Now, how do you avoid that? He says in verse 50, have salt in yourself. Preserve your character. Let the word of God preserve your character no matter what. Salt is a preservative. The Holy Spirit will preserve your character if you allow him to do that. When things are tough, the Holy Spirit will give you the ability to stand tall if you listen to it. And he's also telling them, be in unity. It's easy to be at odds with other people. He's saying, you want to have salt? You want to be great? You need to be in unity with one another. Stand together regardless of who's the greatest. That's how you remain, remain salty. Why do we have church on Sunday morning? Why do we get together? Because the Bible says iron sharpens iron, right? We come together to get encouraged and blessed, not only by the preaching, but by other people. When we pray, you talk to people in the hallway, you get encouraged by other people. When you're surrounded by other believers, you are encouraged so that when you go out and you're not surrounded by other Christians, you're able to stand. Because you have fellowship with a group that is. He's saying, you wanna, you wanna be great? You wanna do great things? Be in unity. Stand together. Instead of thinking out who's the greatest, stick with each other. Your salt will preserve one another. Your life will help someone else's life. Your testimony will help somebody else's testimony. Your standing tall will help someone else when they are standing, need to stand tall. The last thing I wrote here, and, and we're going to get out. Commitment to Christ and Christian character are the essentials. If we want to glorify Christ, and have peace in our ranks. Are we committed to Jesus? Not are we committed to church, and that's second, but you're committed to Jesus. Are you committed to living the life that God asks you to live? Not perfect, we all mess up, we all blow it, but for the most part, does your life reflect your appreciation for what God's done for you? 
Bible says the goodness of God leads people to repentance. When someone has been really good to you, don't you want to show them that you appreciate what they've done for you by maybe doing something for them? You know, mailing them a thank you card or whatever, just acknowledging that they were good to you. We want to acknowledge how good God has been to us. I was walking out of Giant yesterday. I'll close with this. And I, yeah, you're laughing, right? And I'm walking to the car with a couple of bags of groceries and I thought, how, how blessed are we that we can just walk into a store and walk out with food? And we can walk into a car and we can drive to our house. We can go into a house that has heat or air conditioning. And how many places in the world don't have any of that? They're, they're, you see pictures of places now, today, that the kids are out digging in the dirt in the street because they have no place else to go. And they have, they can't, there's no grocery stores. There's no place to get food. They have to go begging food from somebody who raises it themselves. And a friend of ours back home who, and I'm, I'm sure a lot of you are like this, you, you can your own stuff and you do your own thing. You hunt and you get your own. We don't do any of that. And they would tell us, if they ever bombed the grocery stores, you would, you would die of starvation. And I said, you're absolutely right. Because we become so accustomed to God's blessing. Everything that we have, God has been so good to us. And, you know, things are tough sporadically. I'm not saying people don't have rough lives. But compare yourself to other people in the world who have literally nothing. And you realize how blessed we are. And our lives should just be, Lord, thanks. I can't, I can't say it enough. Thank you, Jesus, for what you did for me. I don't deserve any of it. None of us deserve any of it. But God has chosen to bless us with that. Why, I don't know. But we can just say thank you. Amen.